I tried to write a blockbuster novel once. It was for a competition run by the Mail on Sunday. What can I say? I was young. But the precondition for entry was very interesting. You had to read a book called, perhaps unsurprisingly, Writing the Blockbuster Novel by a man called Albert Zuckerman. Zuckerman at the time was a New York-based super agent to many of the kind of great blockbuster writers. And he'd pulled together the key ways in which you too could create a blockbuster novel of your own. Chapter five in the book was called Larger Than Life Characters. The chapter began, buyers of popular fiction are rarely content to be immersed in the lives of the nice little couple next door. Readers remember a wonderful book's characters long after they forget a story's exciting scenes or even its climax. Those characters who do stick in our minds over years and years appear in more than one way to be extraordinary. Today, we're going to look a little bit about what we can learn from brands that are larger than life, from colourful characters, and indeed from moments when we ourselves deliberately make something we are doing more theatrical in that way. I'm Adam Morgan. This is the Let's Make This More Interesting podcast from Eat Big Fish. And it's about conversations with people whose job it is or was to make the dull more interesting, to see what we ourselves can learn from them for all the moments when we ourselves don't want to or can't afford to bore our audiences. And today's conversation starts in the world of business and then becomes much more personal. It's with Gemma Parkinson, who's a Global Marketing and Business Development Director at Moe Tennessee, and I've broken it into three courses for you, each with a slightly different focus around being more interesting. The starter, which we'll call the 36,000 euro bottle, looks at a whiskey brand that has really lent into its potential negatives and used those negatives not simply to make itself more interesting, but more valuable, to help it in fact become the most valuable whiskey cask in the world. The main course, How to Win a Peacock Show, looks at what it means to turn a boring presentation into something much more interesting, a performance. A performance that still makes you remembered 18 months later. And for dessert, we have Don't Go Out Dull, a final piece that explores the idea of curating one's own life to make it more interesting to yourself as well as others. The common theme running across the whole piece, other than the charismatic Gemma herself, is the strategic use of theatricality when you really need to get attention and reappraisal. And we'll begin with a conversation around the very first brand Gemma worked on at Moe Tennessee, a fascinating smoky malt whiskey from the Scottish island of Isla called Art Beg. The consultancy Interbrand have estimated there's around half a million brands in the world around us. And if you've been through a large airport recently, you could be forgiven for thinking that most of them must surely be whiskies. It's a really crowded category. But then Ardbeg is a really distinctive malt in product and in character. Although it does have something of a stop-start past. Mothballed twice by previous owners because it wasn't selling enough. When it was acquired in 1997 by the Glenmorangie Company, part of Moat Hennessy, the distillery had already been closed for six years. So, over the past 25 years, the new owners have been really building the brand again, against stiff competition from a standing start. We'll hear that it has three things going for it. One is its taste, one is the quality and consistency of the team behind it, and one is the adoration of its fans. Such an adoration that in 2022, a single cask of Ardbeg, cask number three, set a record when it was sold to a private Asian collector for 19 million euros a single cask. That's a cool 36,000 euros a bottle. The previous record, 18 million euros less. One million for a cask Macallan earlier the same year. Let's meet Gemma. So, so Gemma, where do we find you today? 
Today, I am based in central Paris, in the 17th arrondissement, um, in my um, sunny apartment. Sounds wonderful. Just talk us through, in a minute or two, your career and trajectory at Moe Tennessee. Of course. So I joined in 2017 to the beautiful brand of Ardbeg, which is a boutique luxury single malt. And I spent the next four years with them, crafting a passion for storytelling and idiosyncratic creative. And then about 18 months ago, I was lucky enough to be asked to come to Paris to join the Belvedere Vodka team and head up their um, marketing and business development department. So since since then, for the last 18 months, I've been here in Paris forging a new adventure on Belvedere. Thank you. So let's start in Scotland. Let's start in the world of Scotch. What's dull in the world of Scotch? I mean, how how interesting or dull is Scotch generally, in your view, in the category? What was the opportunity? Well, I think, and maybe this is less true now, but when I joined, it was a very, it was a category steeped in tradition. A A lot of really entrenched codes that felt like they were a rite of passage. Uh, Features of the way brand talked about the liquid, their packaging, the designs were very um, identical because you felt like you needed to conform within those category rules. And especially scotch, which is steeped in, or single malt, which is steeped in so much history and heritage, people traded on that. Uh. And especially internationally, it was what was loved about it. Right. For me, a, a chance to, especially on Ardbeg, to shake those norms and and challenge some category conventions. And I think Ardbeg did it with such a distinctive tone of voice. They took the the negative features, especially of its own brand, and turned them into their greatest superpowers. I love that story. And so talk to us a little bit more about what exactly it is that makes Ardbeg so different. Well, the taste of Ardbeg is like biting down on a spiky ball. It's the most, um, <laughs> you know, it's the most intense experience. It's the most peated, smokiest single malt in the world. Or we, I'm very proud of being a, a very strong taste. And it's not for everyone. And they know it. They really cultivate the fact that they know that the whiskey and the profile really doesn't appear to all appeal to all palates. But that for those that are in the know, for those that are passionate about it, they are insanely committed. Right. And, uh, and Ardbeg is kind of the most extreme, potent version of all Isla Single Malts. So you've got this thing that is very positive for some and negative to others. And, and how, what was the, the birth of the kind of the personality that you, you gave and, and, and amplified in Ardbeg? The story about Ardbeg is one of a survival against all odds of a phoenix from the flames. It didn't have this rich, um, impactful whiskey making traditions of 200 years that other single malts had. And that became kind of a negative, it's a negative feature of the brand that you couldn't say we were here uh, for, for, for all these years and incredibly old stock portfolios or abundance of stock portfolios. Ardbeg just didn't have that. So it really then developed its own original tone of voice out of that negativity and turning it into its greatest strength. Ah. So owning up to the fact that they didn't have old stock. So they released an almost there and a still ah. young, 
and almost quite before releasing an Ardbeg 10 years old. Mm. They, those liquids now, those single malts, are some of the most valuable and highly collected single malts in the world. Really? And they initially challenged the category norms of having 10 years old or 12 years old on the bottle. Mm. Now, of course, that's something to be admired, but for Ardbeg, we didn't have that. We'd had to trade on something else. And so that negative, flipping it into a positive and then owning your own narrative, charm about it, be honest uh, about some of your failures because they become your greatest assets. And Ardbeg did that really well, cultivated a an off-kilter, off-beat uh, storytelling device, which then ultimately became such a, bra- a cult brand that people talked about and fantasize over it, it became a, a cult brand you know you could cut them and they bleed out big green tell us a bit more then about how you characterized these drinkers they're a community of insanely committed fans uh, i've been to many ardbeg days which is a celebration on ardbeg every june or end of may um, as part of the facial festival and all the single malts on island do this and celebrate it and for there, for one day, uh, we are open our doors to the distillery and put on a great party. And you're meeting drinkers from all over the world that make this pilgrimage to come and see you. People yeah. that you've seen the year before that and the year before that, they remember you. And they somehow um, come to pay homage to their uh, to the spirits. And they can often be emblazoned with tattoos. I've met people that have called their children Ardbeg um, and, and come to be married at Ardbeg. And... They're, they're Sorry, they called their confused. children Ardbeg, really? So, so I had a, a really nice anecdote. I was um, working on the brand and somebody came to the distillery, a, a husband and wife, and they said, here's a picture of me pregnant. This was 20 years ago or 18 years ago. And we came here to celebrate our, our wedding anniversary. And I was pregnant with our first child. He was born and here he is now. And his name is Ardbeg. And he's 18 years old. We're returning to the distillery to uh, to introduce him to our favourite single malt. I, I get goosebumps thinking about this brand. It's quite incredible. And it, it really wasn't as engineered. You know, we'd love to say it was a pure marketing uh, um, uh, d- by design. There was obviously things that we nurtured and previous teams before me fueled this fascination and cult behaviour. But fundamentally, it was owned and loved by the fans first. And tell us about the sort of distillation of that thought in in the concept of Weirdos Assemble. So um, this is the idea that everybody wants a sense of community and a sense of belonging. And the one thing that Ardbeg did was set up... Uh, the Ardbeg Committee. And the idea was that this committee, almost like a pirate's charter, had rules and regulations that you had to adhere to to be part of the Ardbeg Committee. And you got things in return, access to bottlings, events, information from the distillery. Some of these, this, some of this information that we would share with our committee members was looked so benign to us. They were poured over and collected. So this Ardbeg committee was established at the beginning of the 2000s. It's grown to something like 180,000 fans worldwide who've signed up to be a member of the committee to pledge allegiance to the cause of Ardbeg. (laughs) And uh, they are the the backbone. They keep us true. They kept, kept us true, kept us authentic. They called us out when we pushed it too far, pulled us back in and told us what was right. And uh, they're our greatest sounding board, uh, and they're they're the ones that are a creative filter on the work that we would produce. They're very difficult to please, uh, 
they are. So tell us a little bit more about your affectionate characterization of these really hardcore loyalists as, as weirdos, internally anyway. And why it is that Ardbeg believes that it's the weirdos actually that have all the fun? So yes, I mean, um, th- this idea came about that we were for, made for and by the insanely committed and that wherever your walk of life and wherever you came from, people had an extreme love of Ardbeg because of the taste profile, but also because Ardbeg's universe is one of extremes, of disproportionate uh, either size or taste. Mm. And because Ardbeg's liquid profile meant that you were a particular type of person who liked a particular type of liquid, we sort of called upon a, a an idea that it was these extreme versions of lovers of scotch, which was where you found Ardbeg. So when yeah. you first drink scotch, you might get into it because your granddad or your dad drunk it and it was a blend. And then you might uh, go to a glen where you're a little bit more um, knowledgeable. So you might start your discovery. And then you move into Isla because you're then, you've elevated and graduated enough to be able to be knowledgeable enough to have an Isla whiskey. And then uh. we say, by the time you get there, then you get to Ardbeg. So it's the extreme within the extreme within the extreme that are fans of Ardbeg. And this language of weirdos was, was initially seen as, I mean, it's only internal, we use it. Um, yep. But uh, initially it was, some people found it quite a nerve wracking word to use because it has a pejorative connotation. We knew we knew this, but in actual fact, we reclaimed that. Again, a negative to a positive. When you're part of this, it's the weirdos who are having all the fun. Uh. Those that don't take themselves too seriously. <laughs> we do take our whiskey seriously, but not ourselves. Tell us a little bit about the innovation that came out of that wonderfully kind of rich understanding of this extreme character. Well, we have a stunning whiskey creator in Dr. Bill Lumsden, and he is a master storyteller. And that's where it all starts with the whiskey creation, with the liquid. It's, it's the it's the zenith, it's the starting point, the nucleus which kicks off the plan. And time with Bill is, uh, is an enlightening experience. And he romances the liquid like he's talking about an old friend or person, emotion, experience. Hmm. And from that, the creative teams, myself, our agencies, people that love and work on the brand, craft that into often something that's has a comedic edge. It's always quite tricky because naming uh, hierarchies and uh, rights on uh, on brands are highly regulated, so we can fly close to the sun in terms right. of in trouble with legal. Um, but it's a it's a very fun, playful process, and we're looking for something that encapsulates the brand values, the committee's desire, and the liquid at the heart. Tell us an example of that innovation that came out of Ardbeg's character. Okay, so one of our um, incredibly popular. Uh, releases was called Ardbeg Ardcore. Uh, this was the one that was the, like the rock and roll whiskey. It was like biting down on a spiky ball. It was the most uh, strongest pungent Ardbeg we'd released. Um, and that had a super cool kind of punk rocker attitude. And the the label was ripped, almost kind of Sex Pistol-esque. We had one called Ardbeg Black because we're the black sheep. Black sheep of the industry, <laughs> black sheep of Isla. And obviously we, you know, on Isla, sheep outnumber people seven to one. So the idea that everybody zigs this way, but we zag that way. And uh, we have got a, a black ram on the front of this bottle. So um, highly creative and playful. And they're beautiful collector's items too. 
So this sounds enormously different from from what's happening in in the rest of the Scotch. How much does this stand out uh, these days compared to the rest of the malt whiskey market? I think Arbeg has really nurtured a sense of its own voice, which is something that's really authentic and distinctive. Is different, but it, it, it's not just different; it's distinctive. Um, so we, you know, I think the. The consistency of Ardbeg has been one of its greatest successes. Uh, it's, re- it's used that tone of voice and dramatised it over 20 years, which is true and authentic. The people that are still writing on Ardbeg were the original writers. Uh, yeah. They're still the original designing creators. I think Ardbeg always has a, a joy in my heart as being a, a liquid for those that are connoisseurs, that are looking for something a little bit different and are happy to go on a taste exploration and it's okay if you don't like it you don't mm. need to and we mm. know that it's an appreciation of extremes and you come to Ardbeg to get that what's the return in this for you where's the value in this um i think for Ardbeg because it's a small boutique craft um whiskey they play a value game so they're looking to um recognize and realize the the huge value and it's very rare and precious liquid now to demand that sort of price that collectability Ardbeg has really adopted a a cult following for those in the know and that are prepared to pay for such a um, uh, such a whiskey that comes with that cachet, that comes with that rarity, because Ardbeg's pretty rare. And that's what's so wonderful about the story of Ardbeg. The distillery was mothballed. It didn't have a, a, a huge amount of old stock like some of its competitors. So it played on its rarity and its personality and its collectability. So I think that's just a lovely example of, after all that time, this brand was able to, and this beautiful whiskey was able to be released for um, uh, you know, a record-breaking amount. I love the point you're making about how a lot of the, the kind of character you're dialing up comes out of the negatives, the fact that we don't have this past. We can't talk about Bonnie Prince Charlie used to drink us, you know, before we, <laughs> we can't talk about the smoothness of it. Actually, it's the opposite of those two things that have kind of pushed you sort of in a very stimulating way into this much more characterful expression. I think it's quite a bold decision to do that because especially brands that want to create a perfect version of themselves and you don't want negativity, it's frightening to go there. You want to hide away some of um, the features of your brand that you maybe wish you didn't have. And I think especially now when we have very curious consumers that want to dig below the surface and scratch out to really understand this product that they love or that they're interested in has, they they can walk the walk as well as talk the talk. And I think Ardbeg... um, has really owned its narrative and done it with a sense of charm and self-awareness, really quite a self-deprecating brand. I would like to say that it obviously wasn't uh, just me and I was lucky enough to just hold this beautiful brand in my hand for four or five years and then I got to pass it off onto the next lucky (laughs) git who gets to run that brand. So uh, I I very much had my fingerprints on it for a short period of time um, and I inherited something beautiful. And that negative... um, you know, there's another story of Ardbeg's um, whiskey called Serendipity. Mm-hmm. And it's one of our, again, highly collected um, old release where a mistake happened at the at the distillery where a mix of Ardbeg was mixed with another whiskey. And this is a disaster, a disaster <laughs> for the business. We could no longer call it an Ardbeg. Um, and 
we just lost uh, all this beautiful liquid that had been mixed together by error. So how do you turn that into a positive story? Well, we told the committee about it. We begged for their forgiveness. <laughs> We've mixed your art bag with something else. Uh, we're now going to release it to you if you want it. It's pretty awesome, but we can't call it art bag. We're going to call it serendipity. It's going to be in a clear glass bottle, not in an art bag green. Right. We're going to tell you the story. We're going to beg your forgiveness because how could we do this? And uh, <laughs> and you're going to be the judge of it. Again, it's so collectible now. The story is so rich and we just owned a negative and um, became highly uh, uh, collectible. Okay, so let's just pause here for a second and reflect on what we've been hearing before we move on to the next part of this. And I, I admit that this first section was a bit of a cheat. It's not really about making something dull more interesting. That's the focus of the next part of the interview. On Beg itself is clearly anything but dull. It's a, it's a colourful character of its own. But I couldn't resist sharing that part of the conversation because it is so fascinating. And I do think it has four things that struck me that really are germane actually to our overall exploration. And here's what I thought they were. So first, the value that Gemma and the Ardbeg team were creating by making the Ardbeg brand and business more interesting in this way is a different kind of commercial value to that of Maz, the TV producer. This is not about getting as many people to join and stay as you can. Instead, by making yourself really interesting to some people, you're aiming to create a sustainable premium that is of value to drinker and brand alike. You accept that some people will love the way you're making it more interesting, and some will hate it, and that owning the negative, as Gemma puts it, may accentuate that divide. But that's what it means for Ardbeg to be a challenger and break through the bland codes and conventions of Scotch. So what kind of value are we looking to create of these two? The second thing that struck me was that product description. It feels to me that by describing your fundamental product experience as biting down on a spiky ball, you're building interest right into the core of the brand and the business. And in doing so, giving permission to everyone involved to run with that, even encouraging them to fly a little closer to the sun from time to time. So rather than just thinking about how we make what we're doing more interesting around the edges, how do we make it much more interesting right at the heart of the brand and the business? And Maz, you'll remember, was also good on the importance of getting to a really interesting central thought. And then connection. Ross Buchanan talked about the importance of being really open about yourself in order to connect with your audience. And Ardbeg is an example of really running this. And indeed, how being open in Ardbeg's case with your failures can actually become one of your most interesting and powerful assets and really cement your audiences, your communities, relationship with you. And all of this, as I say, is simply the starter. So let's move on to the next course. And for this next course, we move to a more personal story. Gemma has now moved from Scotland to Paris to lead the marketing on the Belvedere brand. And she's found a new strategy and a new vision that she needs to present to her peers about Belvedere at the annual Moet Hennessy Marketing Conference. And at that conference, as she'll tell us, she was up against a lot of very big, very sparkly players. And she knew she wasn't going to cut through with just another boring slideshow, just another presentation. So how is she going to make sure her brand really stood out? This is obviously less about making our brand more interesting, but more about how do we need to show up when we need to carry a room ourselves? As you listen to this, listen to not only what Gemma does, but to the language that she uses. So um, every year we have a conference. It's an internal conference 
where we showcase the strategies of each of our beautiful brands to the wider marketing community. And then that gets disseminated out to the whole of Moat Hennessy, so 7,000 uh, people strong that share the vision of our brands. It's very common and uh, you, you, uh, our, our, our biggest stakeholders initially are our, our, our own internal people. We've got to excite them and motivate them to build belief before we even talk to consumers. And it was last year, we were in Arles in the south of France in a beautiful part of Provence. It was boiling hot in a beautiful venue where every single brand within Moat Hennessy has to stand up and showcase the vision on uh, on their brands. And in, fundamentally, it's a peacock show. You've got to show up and show off and dare to be extraordinary. And, and how many peacocks are there in the room? How many different <laughs> brands are there in the room? So there were, off the top of my head, around about 12. Okay. And there's about 500 people in the audience hmm. and then many more hundreds online and then many more thousands beyond that that watch the recording. I was new in role, five months in, taking a new job. And I had to stand up and face the whites of their eyes and and hopefully build a bit of belief that we knew what we were doing on this beautiful brand and uh, to get them excited on the potential of Belvedere Vodka. So how did you want those 500 people to see you? I mean, what, what was the kind of amb- your ambition you set yourself? I knew this was going to be a tough challenge. We were up against Stunning brands. They have um, long history and traditions, beautiful, well-formed brands with distinctive codes and symbols. I mean, these are juggernauts in the industry. They almost don't need to prove it sometimes because they're so well-respected and giants in their category. We're like the little enfant terrible, Hmm. the cheeky little upstart that has (laughs) got great... (laughs) <laughs> great energy um, but um, it's, it's coming from a challenger brand positioning and my job was I had a small team but highly skilled very passionate young marketers and my job was basically to build belief that this team had a great strategy this brand was well formed ready to go and that we had the programs and tools to get them excited and fundamentally, I had to entertain them because I knew I couldn't win against the uh, the beautiful mites of our competitor brands. We had to do something different. Presumably, they weren't expecting Belvedere to be the star of the show at this point. You imagined that one of the big champagne houses or For Hennessy sure. or something would be the star of the show, right? For sure. So you're oh, the underdog yes. in all sorts of ways here. Yeah. Totally. Complete underdog. We knew that. We're still the underdog, but uh, I think we've come out swinging. <laughs> come out swinging. We're a real fighter mentality. So tell us about what you did. So I knew that... Um, these, these conferences are boring. You know, you're sitting on your bum for like five hours being talked at repeatedly with similar kind of presentations. And so I think we needed to do what marketers do best, which is great emotional storytelling. It's a bit of entertainment, mm. theatre, creating memories that made them smile or shocked them or made them laugh. So I knew we were going in as an underdog. So I decided that we needed to own that negative and come out swinging. Uh. So I wore a beautiful boxing couture outfit, hot pink. (laughs) These boxing shorts, like little hot pants and a big, huge, puffy, oversized jacket. And I wanted to show that Belvedere was at the standard of luxury that our our, our sister Maisons were, Mm. that we were beautifully formed and that we had real style and swagger. 
So I came out to like uh, Eye of the Tiger, screamed at everybody to get on their feet, jumped jumped on the side of a uh, of a table and uh, and basically got everybody up. You know, we had to get your heart pumping. My heart was going crazy to get them off their butts, get them breathing oxygen, get them excited, right. you know, pupils dilated, and they were listening. I had them then. So you, you had them up on their feet? Yes. How did you get them up on their feet? <laughs> I think I just shouted at them. <laughs> okay. I just said, come on, come on. And the music was going crazy. We had lights kicking off. The smoke was billowing into the room to create Atmos. And I had a great team. My marketing team were basically on their feet just as soon as the music started. I think people were, do you know, Adam, I think people were desperate for it. I almost <laughs> needed just to light the fire. Maybe it could have been anybody, me or anybody else, but just someone that made them feel something. Uh, so they were on their feet screaming. It was amazing. So once you got them on their feet, how are you feeling at that point? At this point, I was feeling nervous, but pumping adrenaline. I was worse before going on stage, off to the side, the mic guy was checking out. And did I have my mic in the right place? I could feel my heart racing. I saw a few people that could see me on the edge of the stage and they were sort of putting the thumbs up, come on, willing me to do Because they knew I was like this little upstart, yeah. this little kid. Uh, so by the time I got on and everybody was up, I thought, they, they want this just as much right. as I want to give it to them. Right. Okay. We can do this. And I saw my team. I was really emotional because we'd been through a really tough time at the beginning of uh, the journey starting. Um, oh. So that's when I felt like we can do this together. And then you deliver how long are you on for? 20 minutes, 40 minutes? 15 minutes. And so they, they give you their full attention. Yes. The stadium. The, the stadium. Listen to me. <laughs> that's what an interesting statement that is, well, the stadium. But, the sta but it was like a Coliseum-shaped room. Um, okay. Uh, right. uh, Theatre-style seating in a, a round um, auditorium. So yeah. I had to move and, you know, people behind me and in front of me. So a, a big part of the way I present is about the physicality of the space. Uh, um, and moving around and leaning in, sometimes uncomfortably so, to get attention. Right. Uh, so, yes. Uh, and were they expecting this from you? I mean, is this how Gemma always shows up at the conferences? Well, they'd never seen me live. I see. So this was new for you and for them, in a sense. This was new for, for both of us. Um, right. Before these live performances, during COVID, we had to do everything online. So everything uh -huh. was done through um, Zoom meetings and uh, recording short videos, beautiful manifesto videos or talking heads, pieces, pieces to camera, of which they had seen me in. Yeah, I was on this little crazy weirdo brand of Ardbeg. Uh, they knew me from there. So maybe not many people knew who I was uh -huh. and maybe they saw me occasionally. But this was the, the first time they'd probably seen me live in a different guise, basically shouting at them to get on their feet and dance. And you used another great expression there. You said it was a live performance. You didn't say live presentation. You said live performance. What's the difference between a presentation and a performance for you? And why was, why was it important that you gave a performance than just a, rather than just a presentation? This is true. That's true. It was not, um, I, didn't, I didn't say that deliberately, but it did feel like a performance to me. Um, of course, when you're presenting to the business or you're presenting figures to finance or to the codeer, to your exec board, you have to temper your style and tailor make the messages. I knew this. For this audience, they were young and dynamic, hungry, ambitious marketeers on their on their journey. And I knew that um 
I suppose I knew that a presentation wasn't going to cut it. So a performance needed to offer something else, something memorable with a with a feature of a of uh, of shock. And and I think maybe that is part of my own personal um approach to engage people because fundamentally marketeers are storytellers and everybody you talk to is about presenting yourself, but importantly the brand in the right way. So these opportunities to maybe be a little bit different in the way you show up is an opportunity for me to perform because nobody wants to sit in front of endless slides and presentations. <laughs> so we had to find a way to cut through it. We curated everything down to the last detail. The whole team were also dressed in beautiful couture. We we needed to get them to believe in the hype. The 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 year since has been proving that hype was worth it, right. um, and and believing that um, everything we said that we would do, we've done. Uh, that was the hard bit. But this was about um, shock and awe, and believing that this team were coming here to shake the tree. I don't have a wardrobe of uh, hot pink boxing couture outfits. It was the only time I wore it. St- people still talk about that outfit or when you. Okay. Uh, when you wore that box and couture, the, the sort of metaphor of the outfit made way bigger impact than maybe we realised. And what kind of impact did this performance have? I feel like the lasting impact is it was a catalyst for change and reappraisal of what Belvedere stood for. We were moving from a legacy positioning to a brand new point of view. So that moment was very deliberate and 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 brutal and bold and quite fearless oh. um, to to spearhead the change of Belvedere's journey. And then a month after that, we launched the Daniel Craig campaign, um, which uh, he, he, he alongside Taika Waititi uh, filmed our brand new um, uh, brand campaign. So that then had another proof point. So the, yes. the team are worth trusting in, the story that they're telling is worth believing in, and the proof is in this, you know, beautiful, highly successful uh, advertising campaign that kicked off uh, at the end of the year. Uh, I love the point you're making that there was this very symbolic sort of transition that you wanted the brand to make and everybody needed to understand that you were making. And so it's not just that you were doing it for the shock value on its own. It was a very specific reason to hear and now do a performance like you wouldn't have done. Normally. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And and that's a good point, Adam. The People often ask me, how do you prepare to speak at a, at a public event? I really, really practice um, I know that sounds sort of obvious, but I write my script script for my performance uh, um, first, and then build build the the kind of creative universe, which is really important about having super sexy visuals and a compelling narrative. That narrative that we kicked off in Arl has then been tightened, refined, and deployed consistently since then, uh, because it, it wasn't just one opportunity that I needed to communicate and build belief. It was with this audience. They needed to then transcend it back with, within their market partners. And then I needed to keep doing that um, month on month on month to to be part of the change, be the agent of change that Belvedere needed. Mm-hmm. I'm still doing this now, uh, writing new scripts, how do we present ourselves? And that can sometimes, Adam, be challenging about how you f- physically show up. Because um, the way that the business sometimes sees me as Arl is not 
then necessarily how I want them to see me as a, yeah. a CMO or when I want to command the, the authority of a room to deliver with impact, to deliver with influence is a far different style. And I hope I, I try and do that. And, that. and that can be a challenge when you have a big personality that comes dressed in boxing couture, you know, you know, I definitely understand that there has positives and negatives to that feature as well. Okay, so you do this fantastic presentation. It has a great kind of immediate effect. You you are voted number one. What other kind of expected or unexpected benefits come out of that performance for you? As a, as a CMO, our greatest superpower is the talent that works with the team. And we ask so much of our teams in terms of their commitment and work rate and quality of output. Um, it's the thing I'm most proudest of actually of my 18 months on the brand is I've I recruited 12 people in, in 12 months we didn't have a team when we started there was only three of us so um, my greatest joy is the hardest part of my job of course is about recruiting and retaining the best talent and I think the surprise was after, actually after Arl, I got lots and lots of emails, uh, me and my assistant, for uh, requests for coffees, for catch-ups, for mentoring oh, sessions, which I loved. Um, mainly from women, actually, uh, but not just. Um, which It's important because it's nice to see somebody that you can go, gosh, they're a little bit off uh, script. Hmm. Maybe maybe I could do that. And uh, Yeah, you hmm. can. Of course you can. Hmm. And a nice thing that somebody um, came to me as one of those meetings was... Uh, they said, I saw you in Arl. I was desperate to meet you. Um, you made me want to work at Belvedere. And that, for me, was it. Like, yes. Fantastic. If we make the brand cool, the cachet that um, emanates in Moat Hennessy and people want to come and work for us, then I think we're onto something. Do you, do you think, are you naturally a theatrical person? I would say so. I remember somebody saying to my husband uh, that I worked with at a social event. They said to him, is she always like that? Is she, uh, is she, does, does, has she broken, you know, does she break character when she comes home? And he said, she's like that. Like She breaks character. <laughs> this is got performances, you've got props, you've got, you know, character. This is wonderful. And I'm an, I'm an extrovert, of course, but I love my time on my own and I uh, need to recharge in different ways. So, yes, I think I am a theatrical person, naturally, but um, I really choose when to deploy it and, and, uh, and when it, it, it's most, most useful. Uh, fabulous. And what do Ardbeg and Arl have in common? I mean, what if you look at the, you know, the, what, the wonderful thing you did, which, as you say, you're kind of you're building on some excellent work already in terms of the establishment of kind of what Ardbeg stood for, but really starting to kind of dial it up and and that kind of stuff. And and again, that performance in Arl. What, what's the common thread in there that is Gemma and the kind of catalyst that you that you are? Yeah, I, I think that word is is the operative word. Is the word catalyst. I think I'm used a lot as a bit of a battering ram, ram for change. And on Ardbeg, when I joined the team, it was beautiful. The, the brand was perfectly formed. It was very, very successful. It just needed to literally turn up from 10 to 11. We just needed to dial up everything that was made Ardbeg beautiful and brilliant. We had to make some decisions to shut doors and to know ones which to walk through. But on Ardbeg, we were really lucky that the brand was perfectly formed the the job at Arl was um, to be a, a, a figurehead of, of positivity to paint a vision we're going there this is why I'm asking you to work this hard this is why it's uncomfortable this is where we're going 
so you know the end point and the decisions we're making should all be in service of that. So let me tell you what that is and it get you excited about it. No one likes being a mushroom where they're fed shit and kept in the dark. You want to know <laughs> where you're going, why, you, why we're making these decisions. So hopefully you can get on board. Okay, great. So are they different kinds of creativity? The creativity of, of bringing out this character of the brand and uh, amplifying the theatricality of the presentation? I think they're different because what I have to remember is I am not Belvedere and I'm not Art Beg. Um, even though I lend myself to lots of the projects that I work on, I think also the jobs to be done on the brand are very different than the job to be done when you're presenting or performing or conveying a message. They can come from a certain discipline, the way I judge creative work, the way I filter messaging, the way I see aesthetics. Um, I think there are sort of similarities, but I... I try to decouple my performance versus what needs to be done dispassionately and rationally for the be best uh, decisions on the brand. I try to do that. Um, so so the brand can have its own authentic voice when I go and I'm lucky enough to pass on another beautiful baby to some other lucky person. Um, and for that moment, uh, it was mine. So tell me, Gemma, then, in the spirit of let's make this more interesting and and elevating, therefore, something from a, just a presentation to a performance. Three bits of advice about how to create a really compelling and engaging presentation. Okay. Um, I think the first piece of advice is around the aesthetic and the curated impact that you give off. So consider that. Um, it doesn't mean that you have to not be you, but your aura and your style they're already getting a lot of cues from you. So consider what that could be. You, you tailor it um, and you use it to create agitation and effect if that's the, the reaction that you're wanting to cause. But um, the way that you show up both in the aesthetics and in your messaging verbally will give you an edge and it will treat, treat it as a performance. So that's the first. The second one is use movement. Be freed of it. Ground your feet. Navigate the room because you're owning a little bit more oxygen, you're owning a bit more space, allow yourself to be freed of the stool or the mic, you're shaking your hands, occupy the space and move into and move out of because it gives you depth, it gives you range and it gives them the ability for an interesting um, vista. And the third one is about, um, is about giving them an honest piece of view to create the, to relax both sides, to break that tension, to allow them to see that you're human and that if you own your own negative, you become charming for it. So be honest with um, some of the bits you're finding hard, even in your presentation. Uh, for example, I, I presented a couple of weeks ago to the most senior delegation at Moat Hennessy. I was really nervous. I was presenting alongside excellent presenters who had really good stuff to say. And I could feel my heartbeat going on stage. So I just owned up to it. I said, I'm really nervous. I'm nervous to be here in front of you. But I've got really good stuff to say. So you've got to listen to me for the next 10 minutes. And that just took the, the pressure off of me and of them. It allowed them to relax in. And they knew what they were getting from me as well. And it meant that, that uh, it was an enjoyable experience on both sides. That central distinction between presentation and performance 
is really important to us, isn't it? We're not going to want to turn every meeting into a performance. We're going to understand our tonal range much better than that. But when it really matters that we don't bore our audience, particularly when we have strong competition, performance is the way we're going to elevate what we do. And we'll recognise, like Gemma does, that our audience wants that as much as we do. Now, I personally couldn't do exactly what Gemma did. I'm an introvert, and while I like Sinead O'Connor's idea that theatre is the revenge of the shy, I wouldn't have had the competence to do exactly that. But underlying principles of how Gemma thought about this and what she was trying to do, those I absolutely can and sometimes do deliver on. It's a way of seeing and thinking, isn't it? And some of our guests are giving us wonderful little toolboxes we can use, and some of them are giving us ways of seeing and thinking. And I'd like to call attention to two, really, that seemed important to me here. The first is the language that Gemma used, right? She talks about performance. She talks about a script. She talks about the stadium. She gave herself away in lots of wonderful little ways. And it's because she really sees the performance like that. She sees herself as being in this stadium. It is an arena. She is a performer. And when she talks about, I really, really practice it's the level of practice a performer would give to a show rather than somebody with a few slides would give to running through the deck before they show up with it. The other way of seeing I was struck by was this sense of canvas that she has, the creative universe that she talks about, you know, from the clothing that the rest of the team use as well as her own, the smoke, the music, the way that she physically engages with that community as soon as she comes out onto that stage, into that stadium. I could use those. I can think about those. It's not naturally how I've thought about my world and what I do in a performance, but that will make me elevate it in a different kind of way. And I'm really struck as well by the impact, that additional impact, that while her primary ambition had been to carry that audience with her at that conference, there was a second but very important impact, attracting the best talent. How really using a performance to command a greater share of mind for our brand or initiative within our large company has all kinds of unexpected benefits beyond the result of the meeting itself, sometimes lasting a year, 18 months afterwards. So let's just reflect. When in our year do we really need to take the audience with us? When's that going to be? November meeting, annual planning, what's it happen to be? And what would it mean in that meeting for us to move from a presentation to a performance? Using those ways of seeing one that people still talk about 18 months later. This has been Let's Make This More Interesting from Eat Big Fish. The main piece of the podcast ends here, but for those of you who, like me, find themselves fascinated by being in the company of someone who sees the world in such a stimulating way as Gemma does, I'll leave you with a bit of dessert, a final section in which Gemma talks about how she takes this natural desire to make her world more interesting into the rest of her life and the catalytic effect it has on others as well as herself. I was listening this morning to an AI expert saying that with the enormous advances in science that AI was about to give us all, they thought it was perfectly possible that the first people on the planet had been born who would never die. And that the only reason they would ever die is because they got bored. I can't imagine that ever happening to Gemma. Here's dessert. And, and are you someone who, who just generally in life um, tends to reject the dull? And the, do, do you have... 
do you have any grey suits in your wardrobe, for instance? I mean, are you naturally kind of colourful and, and always look for the more interesting options? I am, Adam, and I have a very colourful wardrobe. It gives me gives me great joy. And in my youth, I used to feel like it was a vanity feature about my personality that I would like to get dressed up or wear my makeup in a certain way. I used to be sort of embarrassed about it. But now I know I, I use it in a different way. Proud of it. I'm proud of um, the way that I I dress as a bit of a toolkit. It's a c- communication device. It's one thing I like is other people and the interactions I have. I get a lot. I get a lot out of it. Selfishly, I get a lot of energy, and often what you wear and how you show up is a um, is a lubricant and a social catalyst to be able to do that. So that helps me have a conversation, get into it. Um, and I feel it's like sometimes it can be an armour and a, and a way for me to present lots of values about myself without having to tell people. It, it can definitely be a double-edged sword, for sure. I think people, um, and I would be naive if I didn't think that they come with their own biases, the way I look, the way I talk, my hair choice, colours of makeup. For And I, I would... I would be naive to think that they don't. Um, but sometimes I use that uh, as my greatest weapon as so well. So are there other areas of your life that you take that into, that sense of, okay, I'm going to just dial up the kind of interesting me and just because it'll, as a catalyst, it'll provoke more interesting interactions in my environment? Yes, I th- um, I think so. For, for example, um, I'm quite a social person and I really enjoy the company of others and Obviously, I've got a lovely husband, but I've got a great group of friends who I have love affairs with and, and that really enrich me. And a big part of that is about entertainment and entertaining at our apartment. And in Paris, what a place to entertain. <laughs> the food and the wine and the champagne. And a big part of um, that social aspect is inviting people over and curating the night. It doesn't, it doesn't sound... It sounds like hard work. It actually gives me great joy knowing that I've got you coming over on Saturday night for dinner, Adam. And what am I going to feed you? And the layer, the the laying out of the table, um, that gives me great joy. Uh, talking points, uh, features of interest, delight for the eyes. And my husband is a designer as well, so he has made our home very beautiful. That gives um, areas of uh, interest and talkability with with friends. It's again. I'm very struck by by your use of language. So it's the second time you've used the word curating, which is a, just a really interesting word. But that that sort of thoughtfulness about all the different dimensions of the experience that you are uh, creating and experiencing. That's something that you you've become very sensitive to quite clearly. And even in the way I look, when I'm putting together an outfit in my head, I'm really interested in color and texture, tonality. Aesthetics that match, aesthetics that diff- that deliberately clash, and that is from handbags to earrings to um, the shoes that maybe nobody else would know, but I would know, and I enjoy the vista that mm. that might give, or um, uh, the sort of the self confidence that that gives me when I walk out that that I'm telling a bit of a story in the the language of body armor that I'm wearing. Um, and nobody else would notice, like the fact that I've got this particular ring. And did you know that you know this matched the inside chain on my handbag? Uh, they would give me great, great joy. There's a fabulous idea of Vivian Westwood's, which is you have a more interesting life if you wear impressive clothes. <laughs> uh, 
And I think what's, what I'm struck about what you're talking about is, yes, I do hope I have that effect on other people, but actually it's making me more interesting to myself as well, actually, funny so, enough. That's, that's In fact, it's all about that. Right, okay. I, 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 I often don't realise the impact I've had on somebody else until they maybe tell me later, like, when I first met you, I was intimidated, or uh, when I first met you, I thought you were really like this, which people often tell me, possibly because they think I can take it. I'm quite a sensitive person, so... Um, uh, and I, I, that hasn't been my intention at all. It is totally about, does it give me self-confidence? Do I get great joy in in the, the curation, as you said, uh, putting things together with a meal plan, a cocktail, um, a, a performance, uh, a conversation? Like, uh, you know, what I find quite difficult about this, Adam, is I'm not asking you questions about... Uh, <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> you know, you, your clothing attire, do you do you like... Show, I mean, and do you consider what you put on every morning? The weather, I check the weather before I, you know, what I'm wearing and that would change the the style. Do you do that? No, I'm and I... I actually wear very conservative clothes. I tend to wear blues or blacks by and large um, because it's easy. And also because I'm not terribly confident in my sort of sense of style. So for instance, you know, one of my hidden secrets is I would love to wear more jewellery. I my, my old tutor at university used to wear silver bracelets and these beautifully beaten silver bracelets. And I love that idea. Idea. The thing is, if I started wearing silver bracelets, I just have to be a bit cooler. And I don't think of myself as cool. I think of myself as a geek. So I need a complete transformation. You know, geeks frankly. are cool now, Adam, I'm free to say. Yeah, but they don't, very in. They, they don't look fantastic. They're not peacocky. <laughs> They're not peacocky in that kind of way, in a conventional kind of way. So I'm really intrigued because actually, as I go through this project, this idea that actually, um, you know, don't go out dull. And uh, it's actually more fun to... Uh, not just dial it in, but to to be present and curate more. I'm really intrigued by it. And I don't know if I have the um, kind of confidence to lean into that, but maybe I need to start somewhere and work my way upwards in some kind You've of way. You've got to do you. And uh, and if you you know your own vibe and feel comfortable in that, then that's brilliant. Um, but yes, if you want to get that silver bracelet, get that silver. I'm going to get you a silver bracelet, Adam. Oh, fantastic. Well, so 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 tell me, but the curation thought. So why don't more people curate? I mean, if if one, do you believe that everybody would get more out of life if they curated it in a, a more deliberate way, like you're describing it, or do you think it's just a this is just for me and everybody else, not not so much? For sure, uh, it's hard. It's hard work. I, I use a lot of brain power on stuff that. God, like, who cares? Like, you know, as you said, you said you, you wear blue and black because it's easy. You can shortcut your decision-making very quickly to focus your energy and efforts on something else. I admire that. I respect that. Um, so, no, I, for sure I don't uh, want to propose the, that. Because if everybody did that, then I'd have to change the game again and be different in another way. But that could be exciting. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. That's uh, where, where innovation and great ideas come from. Uh, so no, I, I don't necessarily believe everyone should do that. I've got a, I've got a wonderful girlfriend that I met here in Paris. She's American, and um, she's very beautiful and a very kind person. I met her in the park for the first time. Our kids are at the same school, and um, I can't remember what she was wearing at all. She remembers our meeting down to the hat that I wore, and she said you came over like this, almost like this bruise because I was in quite a lot of full on lilac and uh <laughs> like a bruise like a bruise and uh and she said like 
she she said, I'm a mum, I'm 40, you know, I didn't realise that we still get to dress like this. And she said, you know, this this relationship that we've nurtured over the past 18 months of being in Paris has brought her back, not out into something else, back to what she used to love being and feeling Fantastic. Uh, a, a bit good about herself. I had no, deli- I was not deliberately trying to do that to her. I didn't even, I didn't even remember what I was wearing or, or she was wearing. I would have not thought of that at all. I love that she thought that that's the, the rub off effect it had on her. It makes me feel very proud. You know, why can't you wear, like, why can't you wear your silver shoe? Why can't you wear beautiful clothes? You're a gorgeous looking woman, a uh, woman, you're in the prime of your life. You can do anything you want. I love that. I love that idea that, that that's one of the great things about not going out dull, but actually going out interesting is that you stimulate people around you to kind of just wake up. The idea that we're all a bit dusty, perhaps, and we've just kind of forgotten some of these things or don't think it's possible anymore. But actually what you're demonstrating is that it is. I think that's really inspiring. Gemma, thank you. That was fabulous. Thank you, Adam. Let's make this more interesting as a podcast from Eat Big Fish. I'm Adam Morgan. A big thank you to Ruth, my editor, and Ross, my producer. And we'll be back next time with an episode in which we talk to Dr. Arlene Holmes-Henderson, professor in classical rhetoric, talking about why a 2,000-year-old craft is vitally relevant to a new generation of children. Here's a snippet from Arlene. Moving on to a personality who I think is familiar probably to most listeners, Greta Thunberg. We often hear her represented as a really great example of a young female orator in the 21st century. I think she's excellent at openings, actually. I particularly enjoyed the opening of her speech to the UN Climate Summit in 2019. She said, this is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. See you then.